0: I don't know that you have spent much time thinking about this, but you probably will after we talk about it today. But have you ever thought about the question, what kind of legacy are you going to leave behind? I know that seems like a big question, a question that for a lot of us is way out there, but it's one of the more important questions that we're ever going to have to deal with. What legacy are you going to leave behind when your time on this earth is is done? All of us leave a legacy. Some people leave a good legacy. Some people don't. And I think that if we're not aware of the legacy that we're trying to leave, we're not going to leave the one we want just by accident. That's kind of been something we've talked about this entire series as we've been going through the book of Ruth and talking about families that last You know, good relationships don't just happen by accident, and leaving behind a solid legacy doesn't just happen by accident. But if we are going to build a family that lasts, a huge part of that is the legacy that we leave behind. Matter of fact, our big idea for this final message in the series is that families that last leave a legacy. And the reason we're talking about that today is because Ruth chapter 4, the final chapter in this book, is all about legacy. As a matter of fact, the entire book of Ruth is really all about legacy because it is primarily a genealogical record and story about King David and where he came from and how he came from less than ideal circumstances in his family. But because the family made good choices, because the family was obedient to the Lord, because the family had strong relationships, it was a family that lasted and that lasting legacy was the greatest kingdom in the history of Israel. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Where we ended last week was at the very end of Ruth chapter 1 and the beginning of Ruth chapter 2. So before we hop all the way in to Ruth chapter 4, let's just take a minute and catch up on what we've missed so far in the book of Ruth, really covering chapters 2 and 3. Where we left off last week at the very beginning of chapter 2 was the idea that Ruth just so happened to go into a field gleaning wheat, and that field just so happens to belong to Boaz. Now, you know, if you've been at the orchard for very long, we love to say it just so happens never just happens. Ruth did not end up in this field on accident. This was the sovereign hand of a kind and gracious God guiding her actions in this field. But what she's doing is she's seeking to provide food and sustenance for her and Naomi, And as a foreigner in the nation of Israel, the only way that she could do that is by going into a grain field and gleaning, picking up leftover grain. There was a provision in the Old Testament law that those who owned these grain fields at harvest time were not allowed to glean all the way to the edges and pick everything clean. And that was to provide for people like Ruth and Naomi so that they could come behind and by the work of their hands, the sweat of their brow, they could find enough food to live. Well, while she's there... She catches the eye of Boaz, the field's proprietor, and if you look at chapter two, there's an immediate connection there. Ruth says, or Boaz says, "Hey, who, who is this woman? Oh, this is Ruth, the Moabite, the daughter-in-law of, of Naomi." And Boaz begins to show kindness to Ruth in chapter two. He begins to invite her to lunch. He even goes to the point of ordering his servants to leave behind full stalks of grain from the bundles they had gathered to make it easier on her giving her the choice pieces of the harvest. Well, as Ruth goes back to Naomi and they begin to have this conversation about her day, what she's experienced, who this man Boaz is, Naomi reveals to, to Ruth that Boaz is actually a part of Elimelech's family. Now, Elimelech, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, is Naomi's deceased husband. And so, Boaz is a part of that family, and he is able to fulfill the Hebrew role of Goel. Now, that word, Goel, is translated, in your translation, maybe a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. This was an important part of Hebrew culture because the Redeemer, the Goel, was one who, in the event of a premature death in that family, could step in for that family member who had passed away to provide and secure their people, their property, and their progeny. What that means is this, is Elimelech had passed away. His sons, Malon and Shilion, had passed away. And so now Naomi and Ruth were left unable to carry on that family line and that family name. They needed a redeemer who could come in and provide an heir for the family. Someone who could come in and take care of the property. Someone who could come in and take care of the family that was left behind. However, this was not a selfish act by the Redeemer. The Redeemer would often do this at great personal risk because the land and the lineage were not his. It was the deceased name who was going to be carried on. And so as Ruth and Naomi begin to talk, Naomi says this may be the answer to our struggles. If we go to Boaz, Boaz can redeem us. Boaz can carry on the family line. And so now Naomi and Ruth make a plan to make this appeal to Boaz. They know that Ruth has caught his eye, and so they make a plan to, at night on the threshing floor, boldly go to Boaz and make this appeal that he would be their redeemer. So in this dramatic nighttime event, Ruth approaches Boaz and Boaz accepts. He's willing to be their redeemer, but there's one problem. You see, there's another kinsman redeemer ahead of line in front of Boaz. And Boaz... Is a man of integrity. So instead of trying to keep this hush hush, instead of trying to manipulate the situation, Boaz says, We're going to do it the right way. We're going to give this guy who rightly has the first claim the first shot to be your redeemer. And he tells Ruth, I'll take care of it. And so that's when we come to Ruth chapter 4. So we're going to read Ruth chapter 4 together. We're going to kind of walk through it piece by piece and unpack the dramatic ending of this amazing story. So start reading with me, if you will, in Ruth chapter 4, verse number 1. We read that Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat there. Now, that may seem like a weird thing, especially in our towns that have no gates. But in this time in Hebrew culture, most of these cities were surrounded by walls and there was a gate that you could come and go from to get through the walls. This was a place of commerce. This was a place of government. And he went there knowing that this guy, this other redeemer, was going to be able to pass by and Boaz could confront him. And it says, soon, in verse 1, the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. And Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. Now I know It doesn't explicitly say this in the verses that we've read so far, but in these city gates, in many of these Hebrew cities, were seats at the gate where elders of the city would sit to judge over matters of the people. So that's exactly what's happening now. We are entering a legal or a governmental proceeding where ten elders of the city are going to bear witness and pass judgment over Boaz and this other kinsman. So keep reading in verse 3. He says, He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. So Boaz says, hey, here's Naomi. She has as his widow Elimelech's portion, this portion of land, this field. It would have passed on to Malon or Shilion, but they're dead as well. So now Naomi has the field, and she needs to pass it on to sell it. And as the closest kinsman redeemer, he gets first option. But with it, we're going to find out, doesn't just come land. So he makes the offer. Boaz says, if you want to buy it, buy it. There's nobody else but me and you. You come first. And then he says, I want to redeem it. Sure, I'll buy it. Sure, I'll take the field. And in verse 5, then Boaz says, on the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Again, See, this was not a risk-free endeavor. It wasn't just, hey, would you like to buy this land and keep it in the family? But if you're going to fulfill the role of kinsman-redeemer, yes, you get the property, but you also get the people, and you also get the progeny. It's up to you to carry on this man's family name. And in verse 6, the redeemer replies, I can't. I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I cannot redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of a legally binding transaction in Israel. So the redeemer moved his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy back the property yourself. And I love that phrase. I think Ruth is full of these kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of sarcastic comments in it because we know from reading the story, Boaz had no care for the property. He had his property. He wanted Ruth. Buy back the property. Boaz says, sure, I'll take the property, but that's not really what I'm after. In verse 9, Boaz says to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi, Everything that belonged to Elimelech, Shilion, and Malon. I also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetrate the deceased man's name and his property so that his name will not disappear among the relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are my witnesses today. And all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathath, and your name well known in Bethlehem, May your house become like the house of Perez, but the son Tamar born of Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this woman. And so the town sees it, they acknowledge it, and they bless it. And then in verse 13, we read As Luke Ruth. And she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. And the neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What an incredible story, right? The, you, you can feel almost the courtroom drama take place as Boaz approaches the neighbor and says, Hey, do you want to redeem this? And then the, everybody gasps as he says, Yes, I will. But then he finds out that it's more than he can. And so Boaz, not going after the property, gets Ruth. And now they are married and they have a son. And this son has a son. And his son is King David, a king after God's own heart. What an incredible incredible story. What an incredible legacy. Could you imagine being King David and having this story of your grandmother and grandfather to go back on and read the troubles they went through, the way that they met, the drama that unfolded as you came to be? Had to be incredible. This chapter is all about legacy. This book is all about legacy. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, even Elimelech, Malon, and Shilion are all left with this enduring legacy that through their lineage would come King David, and we know ultimately through King David would come the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's incredible. But what I want to do in our last few minutes today is just zoom in even closer, take an even deeper look at the legacy that both and that, that, that uh, Ruth and Boaz left behind. You know, I think when we talk about the legacy that gets left behind, it's easy to think about the inheritance that we leave our kids, whether it's land, maybe it's stock, maybe it's cash, maybe whatever. We think about the material possessions that we leave behind. But I think it's really important for us to realize that who we leave behind is more important than what we leave behind. The people we leave behind and the lessons that we leave to them are of far more importance than the material possessions that we leave. So when we look at the legacy of Ruth and Boaz, I think we can look at the character that they left behind and the lessons they left behind in that. So let's take a little bit of time and look deeper into that legacy. I think the first thing we see is a legacy of walking in obedience to God's Word. Now, I don't think that as we tell this story, we can overestimate the importance of Boaz's desire to do things the right way. His commitment to do things the right way, even when it was harder. So I I, I can't help but as we look at this to think back of Elimelech, who no doubt made a good intention choice to take the easy way out of a famine, disobey God's word, and go to a foreign nation and ultimately find disaster for his family. And we can contrast that with Boaz, who is presented with a tough situation. He obviously wants to redeem Ruth. He obviously wants to marry Ruth, but he knows that it's not his first option. How easy would it have been for him to manipulate the situation, for him to go behind the backs of the people, for him to do all of these shady things for good intentions to make things work out? But he doesn't. Boaz is a man of integrity. He doesn't take the easy way out. He chooses to trust and follow the clear teachings of God's Word for how these things work rather than just trying to ensure the outcome he had hoped for. Man, there's such a lesson there for us today that we have to trust that when we follow God's Word, things will work according to God's plan. I know we already talked about this in the first week of the series, but I know the temptation is so real for every single one of us to have good intentions and to try to sidestep the teachings of Scripture or the commands of God in order to have our good intention purposes come to fruition. But we can't do that. No matter how good our intentions are, if we are disobedient, they are all for nothing. And so I'm thankful that we look at Boaz and we look at Ruth and we see the legacy they leave behind of doing things the hard way even though there's an easier way because the hard way is the right way. I think that's so big and and I think you see this reflected in the life of their lineage. King David made some choices where he did things the hard way but the right way. He made some choices where he did things the easy way that were the wrong way. But ultimately, he could never get away from being a man of integrity to do things according to God's Word, even if it made it a more difficult circumstance. So I love that. They left a legacy of walking in obedience to God's Word. The second thing is, I think Ruth and Boaz have a legacy of receiving and showing God's grace. Now, have you ever stopped, as you've read Ruth, and no doubt you've heard the story before, Have you ever stopped to ask why Boaz was willing to take on the risk and possible shame of marrying Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabitess? See, I think if we look deeper at Boaz's family history, we might get a better understanding of why he was willing to take on this foreign wife and the other redeemer wasn't. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 and 6. We're going to read something that maybe you've skipped over every time you started reading Matthew, but sheds so much light on what's going on now. This is what Matthew chapter 1, verse 2 says. Abraham fathered Isaac. Man, we're off to a great start. <laughs> Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezroz fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Circle that. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered King David. Why did I say circle that? Why is it important to note that Boaz's mother was a woman named Rahab? Well, it's really cool. If you look at this genealogy in Matthew, this is all men that start from Abraham and end in Jesus with this genealogy. It's all men except for four women. Ruth, Rahab, Tamar, and then later Bathsheba. So why would Boaz's mother be named? Why is it important that we know her? Because Rahab, his mother, was a Canaanite prostitute. They were living in the land when the nation of Israel came in for conquest. She was a foreigner. She was an outsider. She was a prostitute. And yet she was a woman who by faith God had graciously grafted into his people. And so there's a whole story there. Go read it. Heck, go spend time and read about Tamar. There's a whole story there that sheds light onto the type of family that Boaz grew up into. But what I want you to understand is Boaz grew up in a family where his mother was the outsider. His mother was the foreigner. His mother was the one with a history and a past. So Boaz knew what it was like to be shown grace grafted into God's family. He knew what it was like to receive grace being grafted into God's family. And so in turn, he knew what it was to show that same grace to another outsider, another foreign woman who was looking for a place to belong and a family to leave behind. I think we miss that when it comes to Boaz. Boaz came from a family of outsiders. So he knew what it was to receive grace and he knew what it was to show grace. I can't think of a better legacy that we can leave our kids than to be known as people of grace. People who knew how to receive grace because we know that we're not perfect and there are times that we fall and we need the grace of others. And times that we show grace, that we are quick not to hold something over each other's head, but quick to forgive and show grace. And why can we do those things? Because we understand the grace that we have been shown once and for all in the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to be people of grace. What a legacy that is. So not only a legacy of obedience and a legacy of grace, but I think I want to leave you with this. Ruth and Boaz left a legacy of trusting in God's faithfulness. You see, above all else, the story of Ruth is a story of God's faithfulness. It is a story of God being faithfulness even in bad decisions, even in natural famine, even in the most unlikely of circumstances. It's a story that God is faithful and He will keep His promise. Through this legacy that God had left with Ruth and Boaz to bring about King David, He would ultimately bring about His son. He would use this legacy to bring His Son wrapped in human flesh into the world to save the world from its sin. Now, I think one of the hardest choices that you will ever have to make is will you trust? Like, will you really trust in God's faithfulness? Are you going to be busy trying to take matters into your own hands? See, it's easy to trust in the faithfulness of God when you see things work out, when things happen quickly, when you can see one plus one and know that it's going to equal two. But there are going to be times in your life where you can't see it. There's going to be times in your life when you can't feel it. There's going to be times in your life where nothing makes sense, where God is silent and you think that he is far away. And in those moments, you're going to have to trust that he is faithful to keep his promise. And here's the amazing thing. When we do, others around us see it. When we trust God in the situations where trust is the hardest, when we believe in situations where faith is the hardest, it leaves a legacy behind to the people who see it the people who see how we walk through dark times, the people who see how we live when things are uncertain, when we lean on the faithfulness of God, it leaves a legacy of faithfulness behind us. And I think that's maybe one of the most important legacies that we can ever leave, a legacy of trusting the Lord. So I don't know if you've thought about it much. What kind of legacy are you going to leave behind? You are going to leave behind a legacy with your kids, with your grandkids? If you don't have children, there are people in your life that you are impacting right now. You're going to leave a legacy with them. So the question is, what kind of legacy will that be? Is it going to be a legacy of just material possessions that are here today and gone tomorrow? Is it going to be a legacy of a quick temper, of always seeking the easy way out, a quick, uh, a, a quick momentary life that evaporates, or is it going to be a legacy that lasts? A legacy grounded in obedience to God's Word, a willingness to show His grace, and a trust that He is faithful to keep His promise. I want to encourage you, take some time to think about that. If you'd like to talk to somebody, we have people waiting right now on Facebook and our online platform that would love to talk with you and maybe pray with you as you walk through this. But for right now, let me pray for you that God would help you even now begin to build a legacy that lasts. Let me pray for you. Father God, we're thankful for the time that we've had together. And I pray that you would help each of us examine the type of legacy that we are building to leave behind. God, I know if we're being honest, some of the legacy is is not what we want it to be. And maybe there's not as much there as we had hoped. But God, I pray that you would help us to be intentional about the legacy we leave behind. That it would be a legacy of faith. That it would be a legacy of grace. It would be a legacy of obedience. God, that the people we leave behind would look more like Jesus. And that be the greatest legacy we could ever leave. In his name we pray. Amen.